Last Sunday, we looked into Nehemiah chapter 1. We saw the conception of a vision, God's vision given to Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. Today, we see the growth of that vision in the heart of this man. Chapter 2, we read verses 1 through 10 in Jesus' name. And it came about in the Mount Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given for me, for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and said, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite heard about it, and Tobiah the Ammonite official, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take now the words that we have just read, words that are given by the inspiration of your Spirit, uh, words, O oh God, that you would desire to use today to teach us. And so, Father, open our ears, our hearts, our minds to your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the moment that a baby is conceived in the womb, there is new life. And yet nobody knows about that life at that moment except God. But in time, mom and dad notice there is something happening there within the womb, especially mom. And after a few months, others, they kind of start to take notice as well. Although they may not dare to ask, in case they're wrong, but it, the evidence appears to be that there's new life in that, in that womb. This is how it was with the vision that God gave to Nehemiah. In chapter 1, no one knew about the vision except Nehemiah and the Lord. And that was a vision that God had put there, conceived in the heart of Nehemiah. But as we come to chapter 2, we see how that vision that God had planted in him was growing. 
And that vision would eventually become visible to others. There are several lessons we can learn in this text about the growth of God's vision. The first lesson is this, that the growth of God's vision takes time. It takes time for that which is conceived in us to grow and then eventually bear fruit. It's interesting, when Nehemiah first became burdened for the people of Jerusalem, we're told in chapter 1 that it was during the month Chislev. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But as we come to chapter 2, some time has gone by, and we notice in verse 1 that it is now the month of Nisan. So we all know how long that is, right? We all know our, our Jewish calendar. We all know that Chislev corresponds to December, right? Right? I don't think anybody knew that. I didn't know that. The month of Nisan corresponds to our month of April. So if you go from December to April, that's four months. Four months had gone by since that vision had been conceived in the heart of Nehemiah. Now, does that seem like a long time? To us, it may not seem like a very long time, and yet... I kind of wonder if to Nehemiah that seemed like a long time. Four months is 120 days, and he got up all those days. Nothing had happened. And when you are burdened about something that needs to change, it can seem long sometimes before something actually, actually happens. And so what do you think was going through the mind of Nehemiah during this time? I can't help but think that he was starting to wonder if anything was ever going to happen. He had prayed. He had surrendered himself to the Lord. He said, Lord, you know, bless me in the, in the, you know, give me favor with the king. He was saying, Lord, I want to be, I want to be used to do something in Jerusalem. Why the wait? Why these four months? I'm not sure I can give you the answer to that except to say that God always knows what he's doing. When he caused Nehemiah to wait, he had some good reasons for doing so because God's timing, I don't know if you've discovered this, but God's timing is always, always perfect. And while Nehemiah was waiting, God was causing the vision in his heart to grow, and that doesn't happen overnight. It's during the waiting time that God is preparing us for what is to come. And we need to understand that so we don't become discouraged or try to move ahead of God. When the time is right, God will move. And until then, we need to wait. Wait upon Him. I think of the 14 years that we set up in that gym downstairs. <laughs> That's longer than four months. Fourteen years is, a, it, it, I don't know, it seemed like an eternity. It seemed like a long time, right? Except if you were on a team and you knew that five weeks went pretty fast, right? It's like, oh, it's our time again. All those years, 14 plus years, rolling out those tarps, setting up those chairs, setting up the platform. Any of you thought, is anything ever going to happen? Any of you ever thought that? It's just like, whoa, this will never end. This going to be till the rapture, till Jesus comes, we're going to be doing this. But God had his timing. 
And every time I walk by this room, I just say, Lord, you are so good to us. And you did something in us, right? I think we appreciate something like this a whole lot more because we've waited a whole long time for this. But in God's time, God's way, he worked. So that's the first lesson then, the growth of God's vision. It just might take some time. And we need to wait. Second thing we learn is that the growth of God's vision comes with a price. If you're looking for something to do in life that doesn't cost you anything, then don't ask the Lord to give you a vision for ministry because it will cost you something. There was a cost for Nehemiah. Notice how he describes it. He says, It came about in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. And he says, I hadn't been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad and you're not sick? He said, This is nothing but sadness of heart. And I find it interesting that Nehemiah says, Then I was very much afraid. Uh Uh-oh, king is not going to like this. So I said to the king, let the king live forever. You always say that to the king, you know, because that softens his heart. And he says, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? You get the impression that Nehemiah had tried not to upset the king by being sad in his presence. Kings don't like that. They don't want depressing people around them, right? They want people that are always happy and uh, upbeat and encouraging. And so when the king noticed that Nehemiah was sad, he, he, he was scared. And for a while then, he was able to hide his sadness of heart. But his burden for the needs of his people became so great, he could no longer hide it. The king saw that Nehemiah had a heavy heart. He had a real burden for his people. And I would suggest to you that God's vision for ministry almost always comes with some kind of a burden. It comes with an intense longing for things to be different. And the burden that God places on our hearts can be a heavy thing at times. We read from Romans chapter 9, where Paul describes The burden that God had given him. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Can you imagine that? Great sorrow unceasing grief. The burden that Paul had for the souls of his people was such a burning desire that it did come with a price. When we talk about a burden for souls, that word burden is a good word to describe it, Rod, because God puts on us a burning desire, a burden for people who don't know Jesus. And God had given Nehemiah a burden for the people in Jerusalem. David Brainerd was a man who labored among the Native Americans on the banks of the Delaware. And he had a burden for those people. He once said, I care not 
where I live or what hardships I go through so that I can but gain souls to Christ. While I'm asleep, I dream of these things. As soon as I awake, the first thing I think of is this great work. All my desire is the conversion of sinners, and all my hope is in God. Wow. So the growth of God's vision takes time. The growth of God's vision comes with a price. Third lesson we learn is that the growth of God's vision requires planning. <laughs> requires planning. I find it interesting when, when the king saw that Nehemiah had a burden for his people, he asked Nehemiah what he could do. <laughs> then the king said to me, what would you request? And then Nehemiah says, so I prayed. I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, this was an obvious answer to prayer because God was working to change the heart of a foreign king. And if you look at Nehemiah's response to the king's question, what would you request? You can see that he had clearly thought, thought this through. Thought through all that he wanted to ask the king. And while he was praying then, he was planning. And I think the two go hand in hand, don't they? If we're praying about something, we should be thinking, Lord, how's this going to work? Show me how. What do you want me to do? What are the steps that we need to take? And he had a specific goal. Verse 5, he said, send me to Judah. I need to rebuild the wall. He had a specific amount of time because the king said to him in verse 6, when are you going to return? He said, oh, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. No, so it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. He doesn't tell us what it was, but he had that all figured out. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how long it's going to take. And Nehemiah had specific requests of the king. Verse 7, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that I'm, they may allow me to pass through. Okay, I'm going to have to pass through different territory here. You give me permission. Verse 8, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, for the house to which I will go. He had thought it through, hadn't he? He had a plan. He had wisely thought through every step of the journey, how long it would take, exactly what he would need. He wasn't flying by the seat of his pants, was he? Oh, well, we'll find that out when we get there. I was on a board one time, and the chairman of the board had a very common saying that we heard almost every board meeting. He said, oh, we'll just play it by ear. Just play it by ear. And everybody on the board was saying, we can't just play it by ear. We've got to make some plans. We've got to think this through. Oh, no, we'll just, we'll just play it. We'll just play it by ear. Really? Chuck Swindoll says, It is of great concern to me that so many people who undertake some project in the Lord's work enter without careful planning. They abruptly begin without thinking through such questions as, Where will this lead us? 
How can I express this in clear, unmistakable, concrete terms? What are the costs, the objectives, the possible pitfalls? What process should be used? And he says, I could name a number of individuals or families who entered the ministry with enthusiasm, but later dropped out because they had not considered the cost. The most disillusioned people I know are those in the Lord's work who are paying the price of not thinking through their plans. Admittedly, he says, planning is hard work. Thinking isn't as exciting as involvement, but without it, confusion is inevitable. Good leaders do their homework. That's what Nehemiah did, didn't he? He did his homework. Yes, God had given a burden. Yes, he prayed about it. But he thought through. What will I face? What do I need to ask of the king? And that's very wise that we do the same. The fourth lesson we learn here is that the growth of God's vision is encouraged by God's blessing. When God's developing within us a vision for ministry, He often fuels that vision with little encouragements along the way. And that's so seen so clearly in Nehemiah's life as he visited with the king about his journey. For one thing, notice how King Artaxerxes granted everything that Nehemiah asked for. After he had given him a laundry list of things, that he wanted, verse 8 says, the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was upon me. Okay, that was a sign of the blessing of God. That was a sign to say to Nehemiah, yes, this is what I want you to do. The good hand of God was upon him. And that's not all that the king did. He went beyond that by providing protection for Nehemiah as he traveled. He didn't ask for that, but the king provided that. Verse 9, Then I came to the governors and the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And then Nehemiah says, Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. It's no wonder Nehemiah said that the good hand of God was upon me. God was working in some wonderful ways. To encourage him to keep going. It's as if God was saying, I just want you to know, Nehemiah, that I'm with you. This is the vision I've given to you, and I'm going to provide for you. And in various ways, he said, keep going, Nehemiah. I am with you. And when Nehemiah shared the vision with the people in Jerusalem, that's what he told them. Jump down to verse 18. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. And what was their response? They said, let's build. Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. When you are sure that you are doing what God has called you to do, it gives you an enthusiasm for ministry and a, and a commitment to keep going when things get tough. And I use that word when deliberately. It's that call, right? When you know you've been called to something. Seminarians, when you know you've been called to ministry. 
And those times in ministry get tough. You can go back to that fact that God has called you. And if God has called you, it's all that matters, right? Trouble comes, difficulty comes. You're not thinking, oh man, maybe, maybe I should have never done this. You go back to the fact that God has called you. When God has called you, that gives you an enthusiasm for ministry and a commitment to keep going. And that is needed. That is absolutely needed for the fifth thing we notice. The growth of God's vision arouses opposition. The growth of God's vision arouses opposition. I wish we could say that if we follow the Lord's call in life, it is going to be smooth sailing all the way, right? It's going to be wonderful. You're going to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. It's going to be revival all the time. There's not going to be any opposition. There won't be any problems. It's just going to be a carnival ride to heaven. Huh? No, it doesn't quite work that way. And Nehemiah discovered that right from the start. Did you notice the last verse we read in the text? Verse 10. When Sanballat, the Hormite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Sanballat was probably uh, Nehemiah's chief enemy. Because whenever he's mentioned, whenever these guys are mentioned throughout the rest of the book, first one mentioned is Sanballat. So he must have been the, uh, the leader. And based on what we read about him in the book of Nehemiah, as well as in other historical records, he was a dangerous enemy because he was likely the governor of Samaria. So he was a man of influence. And he could have become a very significant thorn in Nehemiah's side. And then you have Tobiah, who was also a problem because he too held a position of leadership. Nehemiah calls him an official in verse 10. And being an Ammonite official, he came from a group of people that had a long-standing hatred of Israel. Going all the way back to the Exodus. Listen to what Deuteronomy 23 tells us. Verse 3, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Why? Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. So here's a guy whose who's, uh, ancestors absolutely hated Israel. And he carried that same attitude. And what is even worse is that, that Tobiah, and we find this later on in the book of Nehemiah, he was actually related by marriage to some of Nehemiah's co-workers. And he was even related to Eliashib, the priest. So he had a connection there. And you can see why a man like Sanballat and a man like Tobiah 
They weren't just your average Joes. I mean, they were men who could have caused some great, great consternation. So the opposition was, it was significant. It really was. Things haven't changed much since the days of Nehemiah, right? Whenever God is at work, we can expect that there will be opposition. Swindoll says, if you have attempted any project requiring volunteer labor, you have encountered people who never tire of quoting Murphy's Law. It won't work. Many men and women live by that principle. Their whole life is one big negative. They have a critical spirit that smothers them. Whenever a challenge comes their way, they respond, it can't be done. Ever met people like that? They seem to be against everything. And if you let them influence you, they will drain your enthusiasm for the Lord. They'll drain it dry. And that's why we need to put it in perspective, don't we? How many people are mentioned here that opposed? There's two. Now put that in perspective. There's two here, at least at this point. And sometimes it's only one. Remember um, Elijah? When he had called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, took a stand against 450 prophets of Baal. Next day, the queen, Jezebel, said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you away. <laughs> and what did Elijah do? He's off running, hiding in a cave. And I'm the only one serving your Lord. And Lord, come, what are you doing here? And oh, God says, Elijah, put it into perspective. <laughs> this is one woman. There's 7,000 who haven't bowed down to, to Baal. Think about this. Put it into perspective. It was just two. Just two. So as we think of opposition, are we going to let one or two people just ruin our, take away our joy? One or two people that are always negative, are always standing in the way, are always, you know, are we going to allow them to to stop us. I remember early in ministry, there were times when um, I allowed that to happen, where there were just a few that just, just seemed to have a negative spirit. And I finally said, Lord, I am not going to let them take my joy. I'm not going to allow their attitude to take away my joy of, of serving you. This is where you've called me to be. <laughs> Put it into perspective. If you read through the chapters to follow, you see that Nehemiah would not let that happen. No matter what people said, no matter what people did, he remained committed to the task of rebuilding the wall. This was the burden that God had placed in his heart, and Nehemiah was determined by the grace of God that he was going to fulfill the calling that God had given him. And if you want to know what the key is, Listen to these verses. You're going to see a pattern. Chapter 1, verse 4. When I heard these words, 
I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Chapter 2, verse 4, Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Chapter 4, verse 4, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Chapter 4, verse 9, But we prayed to our God. Chapter 6, verse 9. But now, O our God, strengthen my hands. Chapter 6, verse 14. Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs. What's the key in all of those verses? What did he do? It was all based on presenting his need to God on his knees. That's the key to the whole life of, of, of Nehemiah. He believed that it was always appropriate to pray. Well, that's a basic truth, but I'll tell you what, that, that is a real key to ministry, isn't it? We face the challenges of life, of Christian living, on our knees. Linda Washington, writing in Our Daily Bread, tells about an email that she got from Aunt Gladys. And at the end of the email, Aunt Gladys said, I cut down a walnut tree today with my chainsaw. Now, Aunt Gladys was 76 years old. Now, I would assume that most, probably most women aren't wielding chainsaws very often. Any of you ladies? Probably not, maybe now and then, but 76-year-old lady cutting down a walnut tree. She said that the tree had grown up behind her garage. The roots were threatening to break through the concrete. She said it had to go. What more could you do but cut it down? But at the end of her email, she said to her niece, Linda, not to worry, because she said, I always pray before I tackle a job like that. <laughs> I always pray before I tackle a job like that. That could have come from the mouth of Nehemiah, right? Because every, every stage of the way, from the time the vision was placed in his heart, to the time before the king, to the time when opposition came, and all through the book, we see the same thing. Nehemiah on his knees in prayer. He knew there was no other way. No other way that wall would be built unless God was in it. That's how he lived. Is that how you live? Knowing that God must be in it. If you're going to follow God's plan for your life, that's how you're going to need to live. It's not a luxury. It's a necessity. God's plan will take time to be fulfilled. It will come with a cost. There will be opposition. You can count on it. But God will give you the encouragement and the strength you need as you tackle a job like that on your knees in prayer. Father, help us to learn that lesson very well. That as we think of the calling that you give to us to serve you, there will be times of difficulty. There will be challenges. There will be a price to pay. It will take time. There will be opposition. But Lord, help us to see that the key is 
is facing it on our knees. As one man said, the church moves forward on its knees. May we be men and women. May we be a congregation, O God, that is committed to, to prayer, knowing that we need your help and your strength for the calling that you have given to us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.